This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. This week, we are continuing our 22 Lessons in Ethical Technology series, and I am absolutely delighted to sit down with Dr. Kate Hales. Dr. N. Catherine Hales is a distinguished research professor of English at the University of California, Los Angeles, and the James B. Duke Professor of Literature Emerita at Duke University. She teaches and writes on the relationship between literature, science, and technology in the 20th and 21st centuries. Her most recent book, Postprint, Books and Becoming Computational, was published by the Columbia University Press in spring of 2021. Among her many books is her landmark work, How We Became Posthuman, Virtual Bodies in Cybernetics, Literature, and Informatics, which won the Renee Wellick Prize for Best Book in Literary Theory for 1998 through 1999, and Writing Machines, which won the Suzanne Langer Award for Outstanding Scholarship. Dr. Hales is a member of the American Academy of Arts and Science. She holds a bachelor's in science from the Rochester Institute of Technology, a master's in science from the California Institute of Technology, a master in the arts from Michigan State University, and a PhD from the University of Rochester. Within the field of posthuman studies, Dr. Hales's book, How We Became Posthuman, is considered the key text which brought posthumanism to broad international attention. Her work has laid the foundations for multiple areas of thinking across a wide variety of urgent issues at the intersection of technology, including cybernetic history, feminism, postmodernism, cultural and literary criticism, and her work is vital to our ongoing conversations about the changing relationship between humans and the technologies we create. Hi, Kate. Hello. So in preparing for this interview, which I am tremendously excited about, I had a chance to sit down with how we became posthuman and writing machines and revisit both of these extraordinary works. It was really interesting to revisit some of those ideas, particularly in how we became post-human in this post-2020 moment, in this era where we have all experienced social distancing and Zoom birthday parties, and where most of our means of connecting to other human beings is virtual. When what we call human is hypermediated by machines in such an unprecedented way, how do you think about these ideas in a post-2020 context? Well, I'd like to just mark a movement in my own thought from my 1999 book, How We Became Posthuman, which you just mentioned, and the book that I'm currently finishing this fall, which is called Technosymbiosis, Futures of the Human. And in the How We Became Posthuman book, I was trying to chart the ways in which developments in technology and informatics were busily taking apart the idea of the human as we inherited from uh, the Enlightenment. That is, that humans are primarily rational, that they're autonomous, that they operate through free will, and so forth. And I was trying to show that developments in robotics, in informatics, and in virtual reality we're challenging each of those primary assumptions. I've moved forward from that dismantling project 
and have tried to theorize and think about our present situation in terms of what I call cognitive assemblages. And that speaks precisely to your point about most of our interactions being virtual. The idea of a cognitive assemblage is that humans are not the only cognizers on the planet, that non-human beings also have cognitive capacities. In fact, my claim is that all non-human life forms have cognitive capabilities, and also computational media have cognitive capabilities. And so a cognitive assemblage is a collectivity through which information, interpretations, and meanings circulate. And the emphasis in my present book is on our symbiosis with computational media and how deeply we have entered into that symbiosis so that computational media have really now become our essential symbionts. That's true, I think, universally for developed societies. If you're going to certain tribal areas in North Africa, it may be much less true. But for countries like the U.S., Canada, Japan, and China, and so forth, I think that it's, it is our present condition. I wonder if you could elaborate on that for a second, because right now I have an image of my morning, which involves my laptop on one leg and my lap dog on the other leg. And thinking about the way that that three different kind of cognitive systems or ways of thinking are interacting in the same space in the same moment. Is this what you're talking about in terms of cognitive assemblages? And what are the kind of consequences of that on a practical level and an ethical level? Well, on a practical level, it means that we're expanding our powers through the use of non-human cognitive capabilities. So I think it's undeniably the case that we have vastly expanded our powers through computational media. But perhaps less obvious is the way that we've also expanded our powers through our collaborations with non-humans. And you mentioned your lapdog on one leg and your laptop on the other leg. That's a wonderful image, by the way. But the CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing technique, which is essentially a collaboration between humans and the cognitive powers of bacteria. And we appropriate the powers of bacteria to create this gene editing technique. It's of enormous importance because for the first time in human history, it gives humans the power to direct not only our own evolution, but the evolution of non-human species as well. But we wouldn't have that power without what I call our cognitive collaborators bacteria. So that's only one instance, but the whole history of human civilization and development has been bound up with appropriating the powers of non-humans. As a literary scholar myself, your work is foundational in the humanities, but it's also massively impactful, as I think is intuitive in the example that you just gave, for thinkers, critics, and innovators in the sciences. And your background blends both the humanities and technological training. You have a BS from the Rochester Institute of Technology and an MS from the California Institute of Technology an MA from Michigan State University, and a PhD from the University of Rochester. How did you become a humanist? Well, when I first started college, I had two loves. One was science and the other was literature. 
And as a young person starting out, it seemed to me wildly impractical to think that I could earn my living reading literature. So I did my undergraduate work in the sciences, and I had only, I believe, three electives in the humanities during my entire undergraduate education. And then I went to Caltech, and somewhere in the midst of my graduate education as a chemist, I began to feel that I wanted to ask larger questions. I thought about entering the humanities and rethinking my original decision and now choosing literature rather than science, although I've never lost my interest in science. So I had no idea about what literary study in English meant. One of Tom Stoppard's characters says in a play, I realized that everything I thought I knew was wrong. So I had to go back and relearn fundamental things like what counts as evidence, what counts as an argument, because everything was different in the humanities. But having that early education in science, so to speak, broke my cultural set. So I entered literary studies with a kind of skepticism born of the realization that there was another whole field out there that did not accept these assumptions, that worked on very different assumptions. And so I always looked at these assumptions with a somewhat skeptical eye, which I think has maybe differentiated me in some respects from your ordinary humanist, if there is such a thing. What does being a literary humanist or a professor of literature especially allow you to see or know or understand about the post-human condition or the human condition? Well, I think the answer to both those questions is the same, and that is that literature gives us alternative realities that allow us to greatly expand our realm of experience. So through literature, we learn about other cultures, we learn about other ways of thinking, we learn about what people in radically different contexts from our own are experiencing and how there's re they're reacting to those experiences. So literature is a great teacher of all of the differences that are so much on display in our planet. I just wanted to let you know that you have delivered my weekly PSA to my non-humanities <laughs> students to take your humanities classes seriously. Thank you for the public service announcement. Very briefly, so that we know what we are post when we talk about post-humanism, which we're about to do, what is humanism? Well, humanism, I think most people would agree, really emerged from a constellation of ideas in the Enlightenment. So 18th century thinkers like Voltaire and so forth were trying to fashion a notion of the human that would liberate them from monarchies and allow for self-governance. And so one of the principal ideas of humanism is a shift from, well, it's often called secular humanism because it contrasts with earlier worldviews that emphasize life during your embodied period is relatively unimportant, and what's important is your immortal soul. But secular humanism really put the emphasis on the here and the now, and it tried to combat the authority of the church by emphasizing 
the ability of people to think for themselves, to reason for themselves, to arrive at uh, opinions and views that could be informed by education and so forth. So the idea of the autonomous self was very important for the Enlightenment. The idea of the rational self was very important. And the idea of the person, for them it really meant men, not women, men who could own themselves and not be enslaved because they were free. They operated through their free will. And first and foremost, they owned their own labor. And because they owned their own labor, they could build up property rights and so forth. So that's the traditional view of liberal philosophy. Liberal philosophy was one of the means by which the loyalty that people felt toward their family, their kin, and their clan was expanded to a national scale. So the Enlightenment also emphasized citizenship as participation in the rights of the citizen. And because people participated in the national ideology, they were bestowed certain rights and certain privileges. So that view greatly facilitated the suturing of the affiliation to one's own circle and family to the nation instead. And in the founding of the United States, in fact, we have figures like Robert E. Lee, who felt first allegiance not to the nation, but to the state. So the fact that he came from Virginia for him was paramount. And he thought of himself as a Virginian before he thought of himself as a member of the U.S. colonies. So you see these shifts from the local level to the global level facilitated by liberal philosophy. The fly in the ointment here is that a recent book by Lisa Lowe called The Intimacies of Four Continents shows rather conclusively that the expansion of rights for some was inevitably accompanied by the enslavement or the expropriation of the resources of others. And so she's arguing not just for a correlative argument, but an actual causal argument, that the middle class of British citizens could experience an increase in the quality of life precisely because the Indians were being oppressed and exploited and having their resources expropriated. So I think it's time to rethink liberal philosophy and liberal humanism and try to arrive at a different, more encompassing version that I call ecological reciprocity. Can you give us a very brief definition of that term? Yeah, ecological reciprocity builds on the idea of the cognitive assemblage that I spoke about earlier and a recognition that much of what we call our powers as humans, in fact, come from appropriating the powers of non-human others. So it's a viewpoint that contests anthropocentrism and I emphasize here anthropocentrism, we can't help being anthropomorphic because we are human and we think like humans, but we certainly can become less anthropocentric than we have been. 
So included in anthropocentrism is the idea that humans have the right to dominate and exploit every other species on Earth, as well as, of course, other humans. And we need to move away from that, begin to deconstruct those ideas and build up more biophilic, encompassing ideas that stress our relationality with other life forms and with computational media. And are these kinds of alternative models of thinking about the space and the place of human beings in this larger ecosystem part of what you would call the post-human? And maybe in a broader sense, how did we become post-human? Is it a consequence of this kind of new awareness of our tendency to put ourselves in the center of our own models in ways that can become deeply catastrophic, as we are seeing with man-made climate change and what people are calling the Anthropocene? Is post-humanism conversant with that kind of movement and that kind of thinking? Or does post-humanism predate our thinking about anthropocentricism? Well, the field of post-humanist studies has expanded enormously. And now I think it's more correct to talk about post-humanisms than it is to talk about post-humanism. So for me, technology was a primary factor in breaking the constellation of ideas we inherited from the Enlightenment and starting us on another path. But there are now several varieties of post-humanism. So Rosie Bradotti, for example, links post-humanism to what she calls the nomadic subject, kind of working from the philosophy of Gilles Deleuze. And there the idea is that our notions of the coherence of us as subjects is partly an illusion, and that in fact we have porous boundaries And she very much, like Deleuze, wants to deconstruct the subject, deconstruct the sign, and deconstruct the organism, although she has limits beyond which she does not want to go in that respect. Another kind of post-humanism is identified with Carrie Wolf, emerging out of the field of animal rights. And so there, the focus is on contesting the idea that humans have the right to exploit other species and to strengthen our awareness of our kinship with non-human others. So not all of it depends on technological impetus. Some of it, in fact, would argue that post-humanism is really a turning away from illusionary and incorrect ideas back to a more accurate assessment of what the human has always been. From my point of view, I don't think these thoughts would have been circulating in the culture without our experience with contemporary technologies, especially computational media. So there's a difference in emphasis between these different varieties of post-humanism. But what they all have in common is a belief that the deconstruction of the Enlightenment idea of the human offers new possibilities that can be seized upon in the present moment and allow us to chart different trajectories for ourselves. I was at UCLA. You spent time at UCLA. Unfortunately, we didn't overlap. But I think we share perhaps the same memory of residing as most people in the humanities did on North Campus, where we had sculpture garden and gargoyles and all sorts of fancy Gothic style buildings. 
And knowing and understanding the stark division between North Campus and South Campus, whereby South Campus had functional air conditioning and many bathrooms that were highly more functional and very functional architecture as well. And never the two should meet. How does posthumanism help us reimagine the relationship between that, those two historically divided spaces? How does it help us reimagine the relationship between tech more broadly and the humanities? Well, I think what posthumanism does, at least my version of posthumanism, is to show us how deeply imprecated together are our ideas of the human and the kind of technologies that we experience every day in our lives. So the computer is not just a convenient device. The computer has enormous impact on how we think, how we socialize, how we go about our business, how we do our banking and our finance and on and on. So if we're as humanists interested in what we might broadly call the human condition, then that implies for me that we have to be interested in these transformative technologies. And the people who know about those technologies are all on South Campus. So we need to make treks down there. And I did that regularly. In fact, at my time at UCLA, I was a regular at the Cecil Seminars, the Center for the Study of the Evolution and Origin of Life, and met every Wednesday. We would have a dinner, and then that was followed by a lecture on the sciences. And it was a wonderful community, and I'd learned a lot from those seminars. But that's just an example of the kind of interactions that are possible, even on a campus as divided as UCLA's is. And if you are a humanist, I have a suggestion, and that is don't wait for the scientists to come to you. Go to their seminars, hang out where they hang out visit their laboratories, and I've invariably found a warm welcome. They appreciate my curiosity. And from that initial beginning, many things can emerge, including collaboration. One of the things you said in your prior comment was that these technologies are changing and interacting, perhaps in feedback loops with the ways that we think. But I can't help thinking about not just the way that they interact with and curate and change our minds, but also the way that they interact with our very human animal body. And one of the central issues at stake in posthumanism, I think, is the status of the human body in the age where so much of what we do is hypermediated by machines. We've had a number of conversations on this show about disability and technology. And one of the things that comes up in the context of thinking about disability is the radical primacy of the biological human body. There's a common claim in robotics that I think I remember you talking about in your book, that you can almost suck human consciousness out of the body and transplant it into a robot, and what you would call you would be the same. That's something that you argue against. You say that the form that we exist in unquestionably changes the content of our consciousness. In other words, how we are in the world, how we move, how we take in the world through our senses, even how others perceive our form alters how our minds behave. And one thing that I think people often don't know about me is that I've dealt with disability my entire life. I know how deeply that the way we move in our world changes the kinds of thoughts we have, the kinds of experiences we seek out. 
And of course, how other people perceive our forms and our bodies that exist in a feedback loop for our consciousnesses as well changing our experience of the world and crafting our conscious experience. And if you have any doubts about this, just ask a person of color in the United States whether their experience in the world and therefore their consciousness about themselves in that world has not been impacted by the bodily form that they exist in or inhabit. So needless to say, you don't have to convince me of that claim that the form that we exist in matters for our consciousness. But I'm curious, how did robotics, and I would argue that many folks still today believe this, get to the conclusion that bodies don't matter? Well, maybe I should start by indicating that there is a split within the field of robotics itself over exactly this question. And the question is, do you need to build a robot in order to find out what how some cognitive function works, or can you do it in a simulation on the computer? And there are computer scientists who believe that you could learn everything you needed to learn in a simulation. And one of the people contesting that idea was Rodney Brooks, who argued that, no, you have to actually build the machine and get it to work in order to find out anything that was really significant. But if you look at the people who were espousing the idea that the body doesn't work, and the figure that comes to mind foremost for me is Hans Moravec in his book, Mind Children. Um, these are people who know a lot about robotics and who know very little about physiology. So you would never get a researcher in human biology to agree that the body does not matter. But the training of these people was not in fields like physiology or human biology or anatomy. It was in circuits and electronics and so forth. So it was easy for them to imagine that, in fact, a robot could be a recipient of human consciousness. But behind that idea is another idea, and that was that information could flow from one substrate to another without the information itself being affected. And that really goes all the way back to Claude Shannon's theory of information in 1948, after the end of World War II, when research in electronics and computer technology really began to take off like a rocket. So this disembodied idea of information was part of the assumption there. The other part of the assumption was that the human mind itself consisted mainly of a flow of information. And if you put those two together, then you get the idea that consciousness is basically an informational pattern. It doesn't depend on the substrate in which it is instantiated. It can flow from one substrate to another without being affected. Now, in computer technology, we see this happen all the time. You save a file on your computer, but you can upload it to the cloud. There it is on a different kind of server altogether, but you can access it whenever you want. So it works well with information that is only a pattern of binary digits. But it works really poorly as soon as you try to apply that to any biological organism especially one as complex as the human being. 
And their embodiment enters in all kinds of ways, some of which are not really fully understood even at the present, that it's not a case of embodying information in a substrate. That whole idea of there being some kind of vessel and you pour the information in, but it isn't really affected. You can pour it out into another vessel, like changing wine bottles or something like that. That whole metaphor is radically flawed because information exists as electrical impulses in the brain, but information as electrical impulses has a integrate and intrinsic tie with the synapses that are creating those electrical impulses, the complex chemical system of neurotransmitters and so forth, all of which are in turn connected to other body sensors and other body systems. So it's a profoundly embodied system from the ground up. And the flaw here is really thinking that humans are like computers. And it was, in fact, I think still is a branch of psychology, which makes the argument that the brain operates like a computer. I think that argument is fundamentally flawed, and it's been attacked in any number of ways. My own view is that human cognition is embodied, it is embedded, and it is extended. So I don't think we can even conceptualize of human cognition outside of the body. So I would contest from the beginning the idea that we could ever upload consciousness into a computer. And even if some kind of information transfer were possible, that would be anything like the consciousness that one experiences in phenomenological terms, I simply don't believe. I'm teaching a class right now on formalism. And one of the claims that formalism makes is that the body of a text matters as well. So there's a parallel argument to this in literary studies as well that suggests that content is not independent of the form in which it is presented, that these things are constantly interacting in the same series of feedback loops that you have attributed to our own biological bodies and our biological forms. I can't help wonder about these parallels and the models that at least I am drawing as a post-humanist, from the humanities and the way that they fit into these kinds of biological models. Oftentimes, we now describe our own selves in technical terms. So for example, a person forgets a friend's name and he says, my hard drive just blanked. Or I will say to somebody, I'm really sorry, I can't do that. I'm beyond my bandwidth. Do you think that the language that we're using to describe ourselves changes perhaps the way that we think of ourselves in terms of our relationship to biological entities such as machines? Well, absolutely. Of course, as a literary critic, I think that the form of our metaphors deeply affects how we think. Uh, My favorite here comes from Sherry Turkle, where one of her respondents says, well, reality is not my best window. So, but going back to your point about the embodiment of books, that's really the exact same line of thought that I followed when I wrote the book Writing Machines, which you mentioned in your introduction. And the idea there was that books are embodied. And I had the good fortune to respond to an invitation extended by Peter Lunenfeld to collaborate with a designer. 
And the designer I collaborated with on that book was Ann Burdick, who came up with all kinds of really ingenious and clever ideas for how to take my theoretical and literary argument and create embodied responses to that. Uh, discovered, but I'll just mention one of these. The cover of the book is textured so that it has vertical ribs. So when you run your fingers along the cover of the book, you feel the little vertical ridges. And I was visiting a seminar in another university, and I discovered that the instructor of the university had decided to Xerox the book and distribute it to his students instead of having them buy the actual embodied book, which meant that they were deprived of the tactile experience that Anne thought was so important to experience the book in its embodied form. And that was too bad. But there you have it. So, of course, I agree that books are embodied. And I think reading the same text as a PDF and as in an embodied book are different experiences, and they give different kinds of sensory and tactile input, and to some degree, they affect, they inevitably affect how a reader responds to the content. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Just, I recently discovered I'm what's called a kinesthetic reader, kinesthetic learner, meaning that I learn through touch, which is not intuitive for somebody who's a literary scholar, but I have to fold over pages and touch the pages and write on the pages. I have our interview printed out here on actual pages so that I can touch it and see where it is. I think the kinds of thoughts that I have when I'm reading a PDF on the screen are fundamentally different kinds of thoughts. The interaction is, for me, fundamentally different in ways that I could probably talk to you about for quite some time. But I do want to go back to the bodies of our bodies and ask you a question about that kind of biological sensibility or perhaps more properly biological limits. In addition to teaching literary criticism, I also teach a class on The New Yorker. So I will frequently reference pieces that I remember from the magazine. And I vividly remember a 2017 article in The New Yorker titled Silicon Valley's Quest to Live Forever. In the piece, Osman Kibar, the CEO of a company called Samuid, told the author, Tad Friend, that we humans are very creative. When we hit a biological limit, we cheat. Like Ray Kurzweil, who's saying, let's change the definition of human. As each of our functions is uploaded or perhaps even replaced, at some point you stop calling that human and you start calling it AI. Friend in that article then goes on to observe that we already have technologies that work inside the body, like pacemakers and cochlear implants. A paralyzed man recently typed eight words a minute by using a brain-computer interface inserted into his motor cortex. I offload lots of what used to take up space on my memory, which incidentally, I almost just called my hard drive, onto my iPhone. Phone numbers, addresses, where I'm supposed to be tomorrow morning, what time we were scheduled to talk today. I don't remember any of that. It's all on this prosthetic that I call my phone. And I don't remember any of that because I have this memory prosthetic. How long will it take before the advantages of scaling and precision manufacture can be applied to the whole body? And if we did, would we still be human? Well, I have heard biologists venture the opinion that there is a natural lifespan for humans which cannot be exceeded 
even with all the best technologies in the world. And they estimate that to be somewhere in the range of 150 years. Now, currently, we're nowhere near 150 years. So I do expect in the coming decades that we will continue to engage in life extension. But the point of life extension really is to extend your life not as a senile old person, but extend your life as a vigorous middle-aged thinker. And whether that can be done, I think, is less clear. Yes, we could extend life, but then the question is, what kind of life is it that we're extending? I think people like Max Moore and others, Kurzweil would be another example, who confidently predict that we'll just replace our organs like replacing parts on a car and so forth are vastly underestimating how difficult every one of those procedures actually is. Imagine, for example, having a lung transplant. Well, that's a procedure that takes months to recover from, and you have to be on a strict drug regimen to suppress your own immune responses, and you have to go through strenuous physical therapy, both to prepare for the operation and then to recover that operation, and that's just one organ. So the idea that you can just swap organs out is far removed from the reality of people who struggle with these actual operations. Yes, you could have one such operation. Maybe you could have your heart replaced. Maybe you could have a lung replacement or another part. But how about two? How about three? How about four? How about five? At some point, you begin to realize, no, you just can't do it. The human body is not strong enough and not durable enough to withstand that kind of violence practiced upon it in a kind of serial string of operations. So I think we have to think very carefully about uh, what is actually realistic versus what is easy to say in words. It's easy to say in words, well, we'll just replace organs when they begin to fail. The reality of actually doing that is enormously difficult and does take a toll on the body every single time it's done. So much for the meat puppets. I think that's what they call themselves. The meat puppet camp as a term that I understand means people who want to keep us alive organically in some form of our body. What about the techno fixers, the people who want to upload our consciousness and then have us walking around on entirely synthetic material or perhaps upload our consciousness and have us interact in some form of simulated reality? Do you think that's any more realistic? No, I definitely don't. I don't think there will ever be a case of uploading consciousness. At the same time, I don't necessarily dismiss the idea of technological progress altogether. So turning it on its head, we can also talk about the question whether there will ever be conscious robots, whether there will ever be conscious AI. I myself think that may be a realistic prognosis for some time in the 21st century. I don't think it will be achieved with von Neumann architectures. But increasingly, we have neural nets. We have now the Synapse chip being developed by IBM that works along the lines of neurons and synapses. And as computational media begin to adopt biological paradigms as their model, they get more flexible, they begin to achieve more complexities and so forth. 
whether a machine that incorporated the Synapse chip could become conscious, I think, is an open question. I think what we've seen in the 20th century should be a warning to us not to say too quickly, oh, never, that can never be done. So I myself am agnostic on that question. But um, will there be some kind of fusion between AI and humans, as such as we saw, for example, in Spielberg's film, AI, where the boy advances four centuries into the future and meets these beings who are neither biological nor technological, but some kind of combination of the both? Well, as you say, we're already mildly going in that direction with pacemakers and other kinds of devices we incorporate into our bodies. So yeah, I think four centuries in the future, that's a long time. Something like that might be the future of the human. I wanted to ask you about a concept you discuss in your 2018 book, Unthought, The Power of the Cognitive Non-Conscious. We've talked a little bit about the point that which we might reach the limits of what we call the human. But in that book, you also ask your readers to reimagine complex technical systems, the technologies we create, as systems with the capacity for cognition. How should we understand our technologies as having the capacity for cognition? Well, this really depends on how you want to define cognition. So I, in Unthought, I tried to arrive at a definition of cognition that would have a minimal threshold for something to qualify as cognitive, but be able to scale up to human-level cognition. So the definition I offered was cognition is a process of interpreting information in contexts that connect it with meaning. And in my new book, the book I'm just finishing, I have an entire chapter arguing that computers can create meaning. Now, to accept that, you also have to have a viable definition of meaning. And I rely on the sense of meaning that's been developed in biosemiotics to talk about the capacity of non-human organisms to create meaning. And they define meaning not as an abstract symbolization, but rather as a response to an environmental signal. So when a deciduous tree drops its leaves in winter, they would say that the tree is anticipating something that's not there. It's part of a sign process, and the tree is interpreting that environmental signal in its own terms and through evolutionary processes has developed an organismic response to that signal, which is to drop its leaves. So In biosemiotics terms, every organism, no matter how humble, no matter whether it has a brain or a central nervous system, is capable of cognition and consequently of creating meanings. So it receives information from its environment. It interprets that information. It has responses to that information. So given my definition of cognition, We can then say every living organism has cognitive capabilities. So now we move to computational media. The great example arguing to the contrary is John Cyril's Chinese room experiment, where he imagines a man in a room who is 
fed strings of Chinese characters through a slot in the door. He has a rule book and a basket of characters. He puts together a string, feeds it back through the door, and the people outside the door are convinced that he understands Chinese perfectly. But of course, he understands nothing about Chinese. So Searle uses that to make an analogy between a computer and the man. The computer can match patterns, but it has no understanding, no aboutness, as philosophers say. It has no understanding of what those symbols mean. But that's only if you put on the entire situation the demand that the computer must understand as a human understands in order for it to count as understanding. But that's a profoundly anthropocentric position. So if you want to deconstruct anthropocentrism, as I do, you reject the demand that the computer has to understand as a person understands. Instead, you look to what the computer understands in its own terms, in terms of its internal processes, its inputs, its outputs. And then I think it's undeniable that you can make the case, yes, the computer can create meanings relevant to it in its milieu or in its world horizon, in its umwelt, as Paul says. So yes, I think that computers can create meanings. They can understand meanings. They can disseminate meanings. And that is why they're such a powerful partner for humans. They are powerful partners precisely because they are cognitive machines, just as humans are cognitive beings. You mentioned Spielberg's AI, and now you have my wheels turning in terms of how the humanities frames these kinds of questions. And one way that the humanities tries, I think, to address these questions is by taking these concepts in some way and then projecting them writ large into possible or probable extensions of them. So for example, I'm thinking of a lot of the science fiction that I teach Westworld, Black Mirror, Forrester's 1909 short story, The Machine Stops, Star Trek, WALL-E, a wide variety of science fiction novels, films, TV shows that try to understand the possibilities or implications of machines that think and therefore also try to think about what it would be like for human beings to have an ethical relationship toward them. What do these fiction novels, films, and television shows get right? And what do they get wrong or miss about the question of cognition that is possible for our tech? Well, the question about ethics here really interests me. And I make the claim in that algorithms uh, can have ethical effects, even though they're not completely ethical actors. So if we ask the question, what criteria are necessary for something to count as an ethical actor? We have these theories about ethics that you have to have free will to count as an ethical actor, but that's obviously not suitable for computational media in general. So we're looking for a set of criteria that would not presuppose the answer in the way that it formulates the criteria. And there have been three criteria that have been suggested that make sense to me. And the first is that an entity has to have interactivity. If it is not interactive, then it just becomes an artifact like a hammer or a knife. 
Secondly, it has to have some degree of autonomy. And then thirdly, and the most elevated criteria, is that it be adaptable so it can learn and it can evolve as it goes along. So we have algorithmic systems which do not fully qualify as ethical actors because they are interactive, but they're not autonomous and they're not necessarily adaptable, but they necessarily can have ethical effects. When you go to a fully ethical actor, then you're in the realm of robot and machine ethics. And there are people who are working on developing robots and also machine systems, which do incorporate various kinds of ethical frameworks. Now, I will say that every example I've seen takes a pre-existing ethical framework that humans have developed for other humans and applied it to the machine's programming. I don't have anything against that method of proceeding, but it leaves out of account the idea that you could have an intelligent, self-evolving, self-adapting machine that could develop its own code of ethics. And that's what we see in the literature with conscious robots, where you have conscious robots who are experimenting with their environments and they're developing their own code of ethics, which may overlap with humans and may be quite different. So you have the film Ex Machina, where the conscious robot Ava is developing her own code of ethics, which does not include releasing her collaborator Caleb from his prison as she goes off to impersonate a human being. And you have other examples in novels like Ishiguru's Clara in the Sun. So Clara itself is a conscious robot. But she does not, in Ishiguru's novel, occupy the status of a person. She's definitely in a subaltern position, although her thoughts are virtually indistinguishable from a human's. And the person I think that goes furthest in this direction is Ian McEwan's Machines Like Me, where he imagines a conscious robot, Adam, that has a superior ethical sense to the humans who supposedly own him. But McEwen imagines an alternate universe in which Alan Turing does not commit suicide but continues in his brilliant career. And he has Turing upgrade the owner of the robot, saying, this is a machine with a mind that's better than yours. Do you think the fact that you paid money for it gives you rights of ownership. This is a free and independent person. may not be a human, but it's a person. So I think these ethical issues are being worked out both in fiction and in, as I mentioned, the field of robot and machine ethics. Yeah. I wanted to ask you a follow-up question about that role of fiction. How do we think about science fiction and literature broadly as helping us to understand the philosophical and ethical questions that we're thinking about. Why literature? Maybe we can even extend that. Why are cultural products that rely on narrative? Yeah, it's so important, isn't it, narrative in the construction of human values and human thought. I think there's an argument to be made that narrative is almost as old as the Homo sapiens species itself. And narrative is a very powerful way for people to contextualize events and make sense of them. And I think narrative forms 
not necessarily only books, but not only literature, but films and other kinds of narrative forms have this kind of power to contextualize situations for us so that we really understand them in a nuanced and complex way. So dramas, so films, novels, any art form that engages in narrative, I think, has an immensely powerful tool at its disposal to personalize and characterize these overarching abstract questions so that we begin to understand them in very complex terms. And I can't think of a better example of that than Shakespeare's King Lear, which is confronting the problem of evil. And I remember that moment in the play when Kent offers an opinion and Gloucester says, and that's true too. You know, it's, yes, that's true, but that doesn't exclude all these other truths that also are in motion in that play. Yeah. I like to think about literature as a system of of contradictions that the piece tries and usually fails to work out, leaving us with some inextricable confrontation with the internal contradictions of a system and also in some intractable dilemmas that cannot be worked out in the human condition itself. I think that the best stories really do bring those out, such as King Lear, which tries to approach and not solve the problem of evil, but rather to show us its immensity and all of its dimensions and the ways that it's unsolvable. I really like that. I do want to go back to hone in on the ethical implications of coexisting and co-creating with non-living cognitive systems, what I think some people in shorthand call AI. I guess the first question I have for you on this topic is just how much influence do the creators of these systems have on their function? Almost every science fiction story, to go back to narrative, is about the attempt to create technologies that approximate human cognitive systems and end up in catastrophe from 1817's Frankenstein to 2013's Her. It's a predictable formula. The excitement of creating a new human-like thing ends up deeply dystopian. So what's your advice for technologists seeking to create non-living cognitive systems in the 2020s? Well, it's interesting to me that the frontier of this kind of work seems to be now in neural nets and self-learning and self-evolving systems. So the system learns through the data set that it's given through successive iterations. So it's reaching its own conclusions about, about what's really at issue here. And that has some dystopian aspects and also some utopian aspects. So I'll give you an example of each. A dystopian aspect is when the data set includes uh, certain biases that the machine then picks up on and amplifies. So there's been a lot of attention to biases in something like picking a best job candidate for a job. Well, Often a machine tasked with that will eliminate female candidates, will eliminate candidates of color, because in the data set that it was given, they were all white men who achieved the top positions. But there's also possibilities for more utopian outcomes. So I'll just mention here AlphaGo, which was a program created by DeepMind, subsequently acquired by Google, but at the time they created AlphaGo, it was DeepMind. So this was a Go-playing program. 
And Go is understood to be a much more intuitive game than chess because it has exponentially many more potential moves. So AlphaGo was matched against human champions in 2015 and 2017, and both times it beat them decisively. But then DeepMind invented another program called AlphaGo Zero. So AlphaGo was given human games to study, and it inferred its style of play from studying these human games. But AlphaGo Zero was only given the rules of the game, and it learned by playing games against itself. And they then matched AlphaGo against AlphaGo Zero, and AlphaGo Zero beat AlphaGo, which had already beat the best human champions, 100 games out of 100. And the explanation for why AlphaGo Zero was so decisively better was because it was not trained on human games and it had not absorbed assumptions about how humans play the game. So it was able to invent strategies that no human had ever thought about. And that's why it was able to to beat AlphaGo which had absorbed those assumptions. So that suggests that these self-evolving, self-learning programs can in fact discover things about the world, not just games, that no human had ever thought of precisely because we always encounter situations with a whole deep set of assumptions. And if you don't start with those assumptions, then you may be able to arrive at some ideas that are completely original and novel. And that would hold great promise for any number of fields, mathematics, medicine, and literature. I was thinking as you were talking about this, about another conversation that I had on this series with Carlos Marrera, who is leading the Trans Human Connection Project. And he voiced a real concern that I had not thought about, but that your work brings up, I think, intuitively that even if we train our AIs with our ethics, we have to be really clear about how we are training them with our ethics and how and the form with which we contribute our ethical principles. He gave the example of the ethical principle right now with regards to climate change of limiting carbon emissions. He says, if you train an AI that you want the AI to limit or eliminate carbon emissions, you know what the AI is going to do? It's going to start killing human beings because we emit carbon. That's all we do. We intake oxygen, we output carbon. So how do you think about these kinds of questions about the ethical training that we give to our AIs? Even if we can assume that AIs will share our ethics, and I'm not sure that we can, as you just outlined, they invent their own rules to the game and they play it in their own ingenious ways. Can we attempt to program cognitive systems to align with not only our ethical considerations, but the way that we process those considerations toward things like human flourishing? That's a profound and urgent question. And I mentioned Ian McEwan's Machines Like Me, and there's a case in that novel that corresponds exactly to this situation. So um, 
the very intelligent robots, all called Adam and Eve, respectively, experience the world. They have the capability to tap into the internet, so they have a vast trove of information at their disposal, and they have a a general sense of ethics. But in the course of the novel, comes up between an abstract sense of ethics. One of the characters has done something which is illegal. And the robot thinks that if if the perpetrator of a rape in which she entrapped the rapist, if the rapist is to be punished, she must be punished as well because she entrapped this guy. And the owner of the robot, her lover, radically disputes this idea He thinks that what the woman did was absolutely justified. The robot does not think so. And moreover, the woman has a child adoption application pending for a small four-year-old boy that desperately needs parents. But the robot is not swayed by that consideration. The robot thinks that's irrelevant. And yet, for the humans involved, it's absolutely relevant. So it goes to the question of conflict of loyalties or a conflict of ethical priorities. In this case, the claim of the small boy to have a right to have parents versus this abstract sense of justice that the robot has. And I think most readers would sympathize with the male owner when he, in fact, kills the robot, even though Alan Turing objects to that violently. But given what the robot has done, it seems that the robot has betrayed his human friends in unforgivable ways. So it turns out that this cohort of Adams and Eves have all begun to commit suicide. And Turing's analysis of that is that they are unprepared for exactly that kind of ethical conflict, that for them, ethics is an abstract sense of priorities, thou shall not lie. Well, do you tell your friend she's getting fat? Most humans would say, well, no, I would never say that because I know it would hurt her feelings. For a robot, well, if you don't lie, then you don't tell little white lies either. So it does illustrate the ethical complexities of developing a code of ethics when we ourselves as conflicted, often intensely conflicted beings, experiencing such kind of ethical dilemmas on a daily basis. So somehow we have learned to negotiate all that, to be at peace with ourselves, despite all these conflicts. But how do you program something like that flexibility into a machine? As the lines between human and computational become increasingly blurred, as these feedback loops and as our sense of the personhood or possible personhood of AI become, I think, more assimilable into our own, do you see the core values of the humanity shifting? Are our ethical systems being reshaped by our interactions with AI? I think they're already being shaped, but the game changer is going to be if a artificial system is invented that can reasonably be said to be conscious. And at that point, a conscious AI, in my view, would have a strong claim to be considered a person and be given rights equivalent to a person. 
And that would be a profound shift of values. And of course, many people are now arguing that case for animals, especially chimpanzees, great apes, and so forth. And as I recall, I think it's Portugal that first granted the status of personhood to some hominid, not a human being, but some of the great apes or chimpanzees or something like that. So sure, I think it if you imagine a conscious AI, it's entirely possible that we will have to grapple with that question. Is this a person? Is this a person worthy of bestowing rights upon? And in my own view, the answer to that question is undeniably yes. And if that's the case, then that's going to be a radical shift in our legal code, our ethical code, and our understanding of what it means to be a person. As we end, I want to ask you a few final questions about your recent work, Post Print, which looks at what you describe as the dramatic time period in the second half of the 20th century, where printing radically changed due to new methods of technological production. You talk about the experience of reading a book by a particular author. It's William Faulkner's The Sound and the Fury, if anyone's interested, in a venerated first edition copy of the work and then rereading the same words of the same book in a hastily printed copy. And I bet if I assigned it, many of my students would read it as a PDF or an ebook or as an audiobook. And some of them will read it on a website that reproduces the words in HTML. It's a weird thing that a book is both the object and the information in it. As we talked about a little bit earlier, I think that we could qualify that. But at least in the realm of reading in a colloquial sense, we talk about these forms interchangeably. The latter, that is to say, the information in the book is infinitely reproducible and mutable across multiple forms. The thinker Yuval Noah Harari talks about the idea that in digital contexts, the assumption is that information should be free, not just without requiring payment to access it, but that it should be liberated. In other words, information ought to flow freely. This seems to me to be the antithesis of the ethic of literary studies that we talked about, about form, about the importance of form, which is about the boundedness of the book, the texture of that book, the tactile nature of the book, the idea that limits and concrete boundaries create meaning as well. What does your expertise point us to on this question? Well, just a note here that in the book you reference Homo Deus by Harari, he actually makes that claim when he's talking about the collapse of humanism and the rise of a new philosophy that he calls dataism. And it's dataism that wants to make the claim information should be free. And the primary ethical value is the flow of information unimpeded by any other constraints. And I'll say that in my own reading of that book, that's very much a dystopian vision. So the idea that information should be free, as you point out, indeed conflicts with all these ideas about embodiment in a particular form, as in a printed book, or embodiment in any other form. And it is only by doing away with embodiment that dataism is uh, able to forge this new code of ethics, which I think is, as I said, it distinctly dystopianism. 
So is information embodied? Yes, that's one of the central points I wanted to make in how we became post-human. Information is always embodied in some form. It can't exist in the world except by being embodied. And we can disagree perhaps about the extent to which the embodiment matters. It surely matters more to a literary text than it matters to a scientific paper, for example where you're primarily interested in the information content. But if you're reading a first edition of Sound and Fury, you're you're very interested in the embodiment of that text. What's the paper like? What's the ink like? What typeface is used? And so on and so forth. So yes, I think that embodiment matters. It matters intensely in the humanities. It even matters, I would argue, in the sciences when you're primarily concerned with the information content. But to whatever extent it matters, I would always insist information has to be embodied. What should we know or think about or remain vigilant about as post-humanists living, creating, and imagining in our technological world? What are the ethical considerations that we should keep in mind as we navigate our post-human lives? I think the primary thought I would like to leave our listeners with is that the products we create also create us. And that there's this very strong recursive feedback loop between the technologies we invent and who we ourselves are. So it's an illusion to think that we can create a product and it won't affect us. It will affect us, it is affecting us. And therefore, in designing technologies, you really have to ask yourself the question, what kind of human do I want? And does this technology in interaction with humans lead toward the kind of human I would ideally like to see? And if the answer to that question is no, then that should be an indication that you need to go back to the design board and rethink your design in ways that are going to lead to better outcomes given this intense feedback recursive loop between humans and technologies. Thank you very much, Kate. You're welcome. The 22 Lessons in Ethical Technology series is co-sponsored by the National Science Foundation and the Cal Poly Strategic Research Initiative Grant Award. The show is written, hosted, and produced by me, Deb Donig, with production support from Matthew Harsh and Lee St. John. Thanks to Jake Garner and Emma Zimbro for production coordination. Our head of research for the series is Sakina Nuruddin. Our editor is Carrie caulfield Eric. To learn more about the 22 Lessons on Ethical Technology series, visit www.etcalpoly.org. And don't forget to subscribe to the show to make sure you don't miss an episode. You can find us on your favorite podcast app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.